Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers tonight, Christian Lewis and Jeremy Sartori. And tonight we're talking Husker Du. Um, sadly, we lost Grant Hart this past week and figured it was a good time to revisit uh, the history of one of uh, the great genre-bucking bands of the 80s and one of my favorite bands of all time. So, um, you know, without hesitation, let's jump in. Yeah, I uh, I think that we were planning on setting this up as sort of a, a starter kit episode in a way. Um, I mean, certainly I, I learned about Husker Du from you guys, um, and uh, but I'm I'm curious, you know, to walk me through, and, and, you know, each of you, um, sort of how you discovered this band and and where. I assume Jeremy, you probably came into this the same way that I did, which is having Husker Du records pushed onto you when you were 11 or 12 years old. Yeah, Force actually, fed. I was 10 years old, and it was. Uh, Kind of like Christian, like the package that you received from when I got a, uh, a you know square pile of records um, under a Christmas tree one year, and, and their last album was the first album that I got turned on to, which was uh, Warehouse Songs and Stories, which came out in 1987. And um, so I, I really, you know, kind of heard Who's Purdue backwards, um, literally, like last album, and then went back and kind of explored explored the earlier albums, not not really even knowing that they were as sort of, uh, you know, heralded punk band and, and this kind of pioneering, like, rock band. I, I personally like that album a lot, and it, it's a really great sort of pop rock album, and it still has kind of the edge that they always had and never seemed to lose, but... Um, but I think Wynn probably started a little earlier than that before he came to uh, you, give me that You said album. that was that was Flip Your Wig was the one that you were talking about. No, Warehouse Songs and Stories. Oh, Songs okay, Stories, yeah, literally their last album. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I came to them. It was, it was one of those things. It's, it's very um, indicative of the time. I remember seeing Husker Du's, uh, you know, the visual uh, of their, uh, their band name. You know, people had T-shirts and, and they were, you know, sort of uh, one of those bands. You know, you'd have get these fanzines and you'd be able to buy T-shirts or, or records or whatever through uh, mail. And um, they were one of those bands. They had a very distinctive logo, and and, and but I, I couldn't have you know told you what they looked like until probably three years after I started listening to them. But what it was was you know I, I probably jumped in on um, New Day Rising. I apologize. Uh, was one of the first was a was kind of a, a single that they'd play on uh, college radio uh, and then worked backwards into Zen Arcade, which um, was pretty daunting. I mean, Zen Arcade's a, a you know a great album, one of my favorite albums ever, but it's uh, it's pretty um, it's a it's a pretty significant undertaking. Um, so I really kind of went, um, like you did, Jer, a little bit in reverse order, New Day Rising, Zen Arcade, then Flip Your Wig came out. Um, and you know, the crazy thing about Husker Du was, um, you know, the, the, they were so prolific that, you know, they sort of, uh, you know, they, they, they put out those three albums within a calendar year of each other, um, you know, and Zen Arcade being a double album. But basically what it was was I heard about them, I saw them, um, you know, I knew their logo and their artwork, and then I kind of discovered them as a band and wound up, you know, just loving their music. And it was, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, it was it the beneficiary of having two songwriters. Um, you know, they were very unusual and uh there was a lot of variety in their songs which is unusual for a punk band back then well i think i mean this is a good opportunity then based on what you just said to sort of i, I think um identify a little bit sort of what the uh i mean place them in a in a context and you know we, we do this a lot when we talk about bands on on this podcast but i mean i i think it is important to consider sort of where they were coming from in 1981 1982 i think on the backdrop of hardcore punk, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that, you know, we all sort of uh, agreed on was that, you know, we kind of liked the uh, the idea of hardcore punk. We liked going to punk rock shows, but there was something lacking when it came to sitting down and listening to an album that was start to finish hardcore punk. And with, with a band like um, Who's Could Do, I mean, they started off as a hardcore band uh, or a punk band, you know, uh, with sort of hardcore leanings and very quickly discovered that they had the ambition and the intelligence to uh, not really be able to adhere to that, you know, that sort of um, basic... Rigidity. Uh, rigidity and ethos that, that, that governed not 
um, being at all, you know, that, that require that you have no variety whatsoever. Well, I think well, it was almost... Um, Sorry, go ahead, Christian. Just that, I mean, I think, you know, even even when you, uh, you know, throw on Land Speed Record, their their first album, like just those opening, those opening notes, which are, you know, the sort of almost winding or, um, you know, gu- guitar, uh, uh, guitar riff, like right off the bat, you know, the, the driving sort of, um, you know, propellant drums, I think, are are definitely, you know, have the characteristics, have all the markings of, of uh, a hardcore band of that era. Um, it just sort of pushes you forward constantly um, and sort of almost militaristic. But, like, but that guitar part right off the bat, I mean, it's super fuzzy and distorted, which I think does lend itself to that sort of punk genre, but, like, there's just more melody there. It's too complex. There's more melody. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like no, none, of the, none of the guys in Minor Threat, frankly, knew how to play that. Um, so it just wasn't going to happen, you know? Yeah, well, I, I, think, I, I you know... Sorry, when real quick, I think, too, you know, like, after just reading the Under the Big Black Sun, the book on John Doe, I think we, or at least myself, and, and I don't want to speak for you guys, but always kind of group hardcore and punk as sort of, like, this one grouping of bands, but in reality, you know, and when you probably know this more than Christian and I, Husker Du was, was kind of a, a part of a group, you know, so the Minutemen, I don't consider, you know, hardcore necessarily um, either, you know, but Black Flag obviously was kind of the the spearhead of, of a lot of that music, but all of these bands, you know, including R.E.M., um, were kind of the original underground sort of indie bands that built this network that built, you know, that, that allowed all the bands that we love and, and kind of were influenced with and I think Who's Gritty was very much a part of that original kind of um, college grouping. radio yeah college radio grouping of bands and, and you know it, it's funny so I, I was saying I, I heard Warehouse Songs and Stories first but you know I quickly kind of I, at the time like that really wasn't my ethos I was sort of into skateboarding and, and faster and, and louder stuff and um, I liked it but it wasn't like oh you know it wasn't an album that I, I immediately grew on me I went and got Metal Circus, which was their EP, I think came after Land Speed Record in, in maybe 1983. And, um, you know, it, it's another burner. I mean, it, it's a short EP with, with sort of that same thing you guys were just talking about, like kind of a, way more complex guitars than your sort of average, you know, one, two, three, let's go uh, hardcore song. But, you know, still very fast record. I mean, it was, you know, and then it has this pop song in the middle of it, or it might be the second to last song, It's Not Funny Anymore, which Grant Hart sings, which is a straight up pop song with like a, a great guitar lick. And that's what sunk me to Husker Du. I mean, I played that song over and over and over and over again and wanted to hear more of that, which, you know, soon kind of followed with the rest of their albums. Just today, Christian. What were you saying? No, I was just going to ask a question. You know, you, you mentioned REM, and I think um, one of the. I mean, there is there is a sort of fundamental difference between REM and the the other bands that you mentioned in that group, though, which is the you know they were huge. I mean, and the 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 quality isn't just that I hate them. Um, it's it's actually that they were they were massive, right? I mean, no, they were not at all. Not in 1981, 1982, 1983. They were they, total college rock band, and and I think. They got bigger because they had a, a more accessible sound. But that never happened for Who's Could Do. I mean, you, you just like you. But they ended except, in except that you can't. <laughs> right, but you can't compare the two in terms. I mean, one was clearly on I, a path for. I, dis- um, I for disagree the in the growth. sense that, and I think okay. Wynn could back me up here. At Not that at the time, time yeah. those bands were were the bands that laid that groundwork. Who's Could Do played with REM, like they played together. I'm not saying in sound they're alike. What I, I meant more was that. 
these bands sort of pioneered everything that we have today, which was they were the guys that were touring, not like REM, Black Flag, and, and Who's Crew were known for just being complete road warrior in Minutemen. It's sorry, a, getting in a band. My point was simply to, to draw a distinction between, you know, one that got very popular, one that didn't mm-hmm. ever really escape the underground, um, gotcha. but they're equally influential was sort of my point. That, like, when you when you ask every band, like, you know, what, what they were listening to, the answer is, the answer is both. Yeah, it's funny, though, and, uh, you know, with the, when you mention that and, and, you know, when you go back and sort of, you know, group these things retrospectively into genres and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sound-alikes or, or, you know, bands that have a, a great deal of similarity, um, it, the, the funny thing was that if you were listening to Husker Du back then, you were listening, you were an REM fan, you were a Husker Du fan, you were a Smiths fan, you were a Joy Division New Order fan, and you know a lot of those bands kind of don't seem to fit together, but at the time it was more of a um, it was more of a paucity of an audience that that drew you to them. There was it was co- sort of like membership in a club. You were defined by what you weren't listening to as well, which Correct. is you weren't listening to hair metal. But you know, in some respects, I think that there's there are elements of of. Uh, I mean, that's a similar phenomenon, I think, to one you know, to when I was in high school, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's what I wasn't listening to, um, at, you know, was was probably narrower in many respects than what I was, um, and that, but that was sort of the more more the defining feature, right? Like, I didn't care whether it was electronic or punk or or whatever. The idea was I I liked the idea of of you know. Indie music, indie mm. rock, and and that was sort of what college rock was. I think. Yeah, it was and a secret era. handshake of sorts right. that you could, you yeah. know, that you could use. It was a, it was, it was an, uh, it was a uh, uh, get out of a popular lunch table free uh, <laughs> card. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, what? Well, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Jeremy. I was going to say I think you do have a really good point too, though. In, in your REM uh, Husker Du uh, point is that you're right. Like REM, obviously did kind of make that shift and, and Husker Du didn't. I mean, one thing that I, I kind of want to talk about, and we can take a break and talk about it um, or not, but is that, you know, I remember reading very vividly in 1987, you know, at age 10 or 11, Spin Magazine, the article where, where they broke up, you know, and it talked about them breaking up. And it talked, and, and critics and, and sort of magazines and, and, you know, talking heads and music talked about these guys as if they were going to be as big as R.E.M., and you know, going back and listening to the catalog, yeah, it was like always topping the Paz and Jop poll. Uh, the, oh, yeah. the Robert yeah, Chris guys, like, like Village Boys are just never. I mean, I don't know that they would be you know big today. Uh, you know, it, they just. I mean, to us, they had. I think, and to a lot of people, obviously, they had great pop sensibility and a great sound. But, but um, I mean, when I'd to, love to hear your. To be take fair, their their last their last two albums were on Warner Brothers yeah. and. Um, you know, they were championed to a degree. I mean, they didn't chart very high and they didn't sell a ton of records. But, you know, by the end of their run, they were playing, you know, th- they were playing the theater circuit. It wasn't like they were still toiling away at, at the Rat in, you know, Boston or, or Seabees. They were playing places like the Beacon Theater and the Orpheum and you know, the Wiltern in L.A., you know, they were playing 2,000, 3,000-seat theaters. Well, and if they'd hung on another five years, they would have been playing even bigger venues, Um, although they would have been later in their careers. Like, it probably would have clicked for them just with the dawn of grunge. I mean, they they would have been seen as, like, the the sort of original architects of that and, you know, were the, the... sort of um, spiritual forefathers kind of thing. Uh, and they, you know, and I, I think they were, but they just weren't around well, they ran, point. they ran the same, so they had a very similar career trajectory to the Pixies in the sense that they are much bigger now and their influence is much bigger now than it ever was when they were in existence. And to boot, they were bigger in Europe than they were here. Interesting. Well, do you guys want to take a, take a quick break and then we'll come back? And um, I, I actually have two two sort of questions I want to ask next. I think so. All we'll, right, we'll take a quick break it. and we'll come back.
All right, welcome back to Brother, 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 where today we're talking about Husker Du. Uh, Husker Du, of course, uh, do you remember in Danish, um, for all of you non-Danish speakers out there, which is, uh, which is named after a, a board game, but we're not here to talk about the board game today. We're here to talk about the uh, seminal 80s um, punk band. And as I labeled them a punk band right there, I, I actually wanted to take a moment to, to sort of reflect on that and ask, you know, how did they fit into this lineage of punk rock? I mean, we're, they, they formed two years after um, the year that England ruined punk rock and, and uh, you know, it's it sort of uh, it, it exploded with the Sex Pistols um, and their tour across the United States. But but really, you know, did they were they were they just a punk band or were they something bigger? And, and what's the legacy that they leave behind? I think they're definitely uh, a punk band and they are definitely bigger than that genre uh, sort of allowed people to be. They, the thing about Husker Du was um, they sort of thumbed their nose at the convention of punk rock and the, and the sort of strict, um, you know, abeyance of rules that, um, you know, a lot of hardcore was, um, you know, was, was beginning to, to adhere to. I mean, uh, the fact is they put out, you know, so if punk rock is loud, fast, and, and uh, um, nonconformist, they were all of those things. The funny thing was that, you know, they, they put out a couple of punk records, uh, uh, Everything Falls Apart, Land Speed Record, and Metal Circus. And then, you know, when they signed to uh, SST, which was the sort of ground zero for, for California punk with uh, Black Flag and um, the Minutemen and everybody else, they pulled off one of the weirdest um, career choices or one of the weirdest uh, choices you could possibly pull off, which is they put out in 1984 an album called Zen Arcade, which was a double album, uh, a double concept album. So everything right there... Uh, flouts every convention you could possibly. So this is literally as nerdy as Rush, is what you're saying. Um, no, nothing's as nerdy as Rush. They're <laughs> Americans, at least. Okay, they're Americans, so that's <laughs> but, plus one. It's as but, ambitious um, as a. It was ambitious. It was, but it was also, you know, kind of like, you know, fuck you. you. Don't tell me what well, is and is isn't. It, this is such an interesting. I mean, I've always, I've always sort of thought there's like an inherent paradox in punk rock, which is that you, um, you can only. Uh, undercut convention so many times, and then once you have done that, and you establish, <laughs> yeah, and then you establish that as the new convention, then you have to undercut yourself or reverse course or whatever it is, and that's where you get stuff like this, where you you know you you have Zen Arcade as you're saying, which is like that sounds like something fucking King Crimson would do, not necessarily it, something. That, it, yeah, and not only that, but something they would title an album. But um, you know, I think I, I think like I said, everything about this band was different than punk rock convention. I mean, they were from Minneapolis, or they were from St. Paul, Minnesota. Was it deliberate, or was it just the happy accident of being clueless northern Midwesterners? I think it had to be. Uh, well, first of all, Bob Mould uh, is not a Midwesterner. He's uh, from New York, which is the... He's from upstate New York, though, which is the Midwest of the East. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a guy who, you know, I mean, everything about this band was, was strangely... Um, you know, the, the, the convention was just starting to sort of gel, and so to call them unconventional at the time was, is kind of weird because the convention was being established. But this is a well, guy but who, leather jackets and and you know, and sort of like oi punk from the late seventies had like it had an aesthetic. I think that was evident at book. that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then definitely. and then within hardcore, you had a sort of. You know, you, you had your own aesthetic that formed in D.C. and L.A. for 79 and but, 80. You well, know? Here, here's, Wouldn't you say these guys the were just a, a rock band that were really trying hard? I mean, to some degree, like, I get, like, that they came up in punk and, and, and things like that. But, I mean, they to me, you know, just with their output. And, and the other thing, I mean, have you ever seen a picture of Husker Du? I remember seeing them for the first time on the... Back it's cover so into weird. Christian's it's not what they point. Should look like. I was yeah. like, oh my god, these guys are a band that I like, and and you know, um, they just were like, <laughs> these, you know, these the guys guy had a mustache. Get on stage. You know, like, well, this is well, this he is, looks like fucking. The other Freddie two guys Mercury. were like dumpy. Like, yeah, like. Well, this is this is exactly what I was talking about. This is so you know the rule book is kind of set for punk rock and. Rule number one, don't play a flying V guitar. Rule number two, don't have a guitar solo. Rule number three, don't put out a concept album. Rule number four, don't put out a double album. Rule number five, don't write about your feelings. You know, and rule number seven through 100 is don't be gay. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately that was, you know, part of, that was a a really shameful part of, of what punk rock, um, sort of espoused at the time. Was that a big deal for them when at the time? And I was too young, obviously. I don't even think I knew there yet until later, but I only found, you know, it was, it was something that sort of, there was nothing ever, um, there was never, oh, um, there was never anything overt, uh, or, uh, that was in articles about them, but there was nothing secretive about them themselves. I mean, these guys were were out, and they were, you know, uh, they're gay men, but they didn't lead with that, and therefore it, it wasn't really part of the the story that was constructed in the in the media um, and the rock press. That said, another, I mean, another thing, you know, don't have long hair. Um, <laughs> You know, these guys just did not look the part of the music they were playing, and that was part of what made them so fascinating to me. Um, I think, too, they just had a a drive that most of these bands didn't have. You know, I mean, I think there's sort of that nihilistic sort of germs punk rock where it's like, I'm going to, you know, just blow it all up and and die. And, um, you know, you look at these guys, to your point, you have a a double album in 1984 followed by two albums the next year, and, and, you know, arguably, and, and I'm going to argue for it, the three best albums they ever did and, and three of the best sort of punk albums, and three of the best albums of the 80s, as far as I'm concerned, was yeah. NRK, New Day Rising, and Flip Your Wig, um, also kind of solidified the, the give and take of the two two singers. Um, you really kind of formed their own um, own identities and, and, and own sort of sounds, wouldn't you say? Well, that, that's... A, that's um yeah, definitely. I think that, and I think too. And I was saying this to Christian earlier. Um, I don't think they could. I think they were confounded by their own lack of of um, major success. I think they thought they were going to be a, a, an arena band. I, I don't think that, and I think that was their ambition. I don't think they were shy about being ambitious. I think it's what sets them in absolute. Um, you know, sets them apart from well, you know, when you read the when you read Trouble Boys yeah, yeah, and then you read See a Little Light, which I've you know I've read both of those. Um, you know, you you realize that the they couldn't they were confounded by a the replacement success because they didn't think they were trying hard enough, and b their own lack of success because they were trying really fucking hard and they were really fucking good. And and every critic in America said they were the best band in America. And why weren't they popular? It's almost as if they they were the the sort of. I mean, they were looking, you know, to to Prince for, um, you know, as as an example of of like what consummate professionalism in the world of music looks like. And that guy was, you know, if, and like I mean, they they saw him on stage. They knew what it looked like, and and they saw, you know, a guy who worked his ass off. And th- frankly, that was the local example. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, I, I think that probably rubbed off. On well, and you said I, I didn't. I wasn't really aware of this because I mean, most of my information comes from Bob Mould, oh. reading Bob Mould's. Uh, book itself yeah. I, I didn't realize that they were uh, this, the, yeah this may this may be kind of apocryphal but but you know the the idea of, or the the um, story as I've always heard it was that basically as Zen Arcade came out they were always a little miffed that they were the less popular band um, among uh, well I guess between uh, between them and the um, the replacements in their hometown I mean and the fact that they didn't get an offer from Twin Tone really kind of um, I think uh, rubbed them the wrong way and they sort of felt like they should have, you know, they were entitled to that because frankly they were working their asses off and their the mats were um, hammered, rats. staggering out of a van and then putting on a terrible show and these guys were busting their ass and practicing seven days a week. Well that's a funny thing too is that you know, I mean, in, you know, these are the kinds of things you realize in retrospect. I mean, being signed to SST is so validating but I'm sure it was... I'm sure it didn't feel that way in 1983. Apparently it didn't feel that way in 1983. So, anyway, you want to take a quick break and come back? Absolutely.
All right, welcome back to Brother, Brother, Brother. Today we're talking about Husker Du. And uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you guys, you know, and, and particularly in light of, I think, Grant Hart's passing um, last week, is Bob Mould and, and Grant Hart really were uh, sort of one of the, the better songwriting duos of, of that decade. And they really did have sort of complementary styles, I think, with, with Mould leaning towards sort of harder, faster, more aggressive um, uh, songs that you know, I think you might characterize as sort of their hardcore roots. Whereas Hart was really, um, I think, introducing and and um, uh, moving along a, a sort of poppier, uh, you know, or moving in a poppier direction. Um, but I've heard you guys compare these two to a sort of Lennon and McCartney esque um, relationship, and I, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about sort of what you know, the origins of that, and and you know, what do you think it did for their music? Well, it's funny. I think historically. Um, you know, the, the spotlight always is shown on Bob Mould. Uh, he obviously had a, a better post Husker Du career. But, you know, when I was learning to love this band, when I was first starting to uh, get to know this band, I was always drawn to the, the Grant Hart songs. Um, and largely because I think, you know, they are more melodic. It's, this is, you know, this is, to me, this is the Beatles as a, as a punk rock band um, with, you know, Bob Mould kind of being the... John Lennon, more abrasive, uh, more challenging, more cynical one, and Grant Hart being the sort of romantic, um, harmonious kind of Paul McCartney role. Um, And, uh, you know, I think with any band that has two, the dueling frontmen and, you know, songwriters, uh, you know, that have that equal distribution, there is, um, you know, there's always going to be tension but, you know, it's funny because I think Grant Hart makes Bob Mould songs much better. And I don't know that Bob Mould, I mean, other than, I mean, obviously he's a great guitar, you know, great guitar uh, stylist. Um, but, you know, vocally, I don't think Bob Mould contributes as much to Grant Hart's songs as Grant Hart does to Bob Mould's songs. Well, I think, uh, what do you think, Jim? I think Bob Mould, too. I mean, I, I think he, whether he, you know, there was a dual dual singer-songwriter credit always, and they flip-flop songs a lot, but I, I think he, you know, kind of wanted to be and, and sort of was a bit of the leader of the band. Um, but I also think there was a huge, like, morph in their music, and I totally agree with everything you said, Wayne, and I, too, was very drawn to... Um, Grand Hart songs, especially on the on the sort of uh, triple play that I the mentioned three, earlier, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know those are my favorite songs. And, and when I think about Who's Gonna Do, those are my favorite songs. But you know, I think Bob Mould kind of had an edge all the way through, and sort of it, it started to fade and flip your wig, and he started to kind of it started to turn a little bit. And Bob Mould's songs started to also have more melody and, and more mm-hmm. um, pop. And then post that, and it may have been you know uh, you know it's pretty well docu- documented that Grand Hart had a, had a pretty bad drug addiction and especially towards the end of the, the career here, you know, albums like Candy Apple Gray and Warehouse Songs and Story really become, I think, Grant Hart starts to really slip and and, can, and Bob Mould kind of takes over that that pop sensibility. I mean, and even sort of balladry. I mean, songs like Hardly Getting Used to It, which is actually yeah. like on my top five of two songs too, and it's an acoustic song, um, you know, is a really powerful song. And I think Bob Mould kind of matured and, and, and Grant Hart sort of slipped, I think, you know, early on, for me at least, I'm sure there's other people that disagree, I always thought Grant Hart was a bit of a stronger songwriter as well. I mean, Bob Mould definitely had the anger and the kind of ferocity that we were, you know, talking about, but that wasn't necessarily my thing. I thought that, that Grant Hart really had great song craft.
Yeah, there's a there's a, a melodicism and a romance to his stuff. He wasn't afraid to sing about love. Um, and, and I think that was so foreign to uh, the punk rock scene, and I think that's what really sets them apart. I mean, to me, Husker Du is set apart from the rest of the punk rock world. By they were really the same I thing. Mean, the replacements were it it, it. it was alienating to a lot of the sort of uh, to certain punk. I rock think they were both right? you know very intellectual songwriters, yeah. but came from a different place. Like to me, the replacements were. Um, you know, kind of the greatest bar band of all time. Whereas, um, you know, there was a more there was more muscularity and and also uh, more um, sort of uh, emotion in in Zenark and I mean in in uh, Du songs. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's easier for me to think of uh, or to to understand why and how Husker Du was sort of placed into that. Um, you know, particularly a hardcore punk tradition, and like, there's just the replacements have nothing to do with that. I mean, they're punk in a certain ethos, certainly in the nihilism. Like, their attitude was pretty punk, um, but yeah, no, I think the the difference here is that musically, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I mean this with with every ounce of of uh, respect, and and because I love both bands, but to me, the replacements were an aborted version of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Um, and, you know, Husker Du was definitely a, a, a louder, faster, um, you know, and more genre-defining uh, or defying and defining band. They were more of a punk rock band than, um, or sound-wise, than the replacements were. The replacements to me were, were you know, part of the American tradition that produces Bruce Springsteen and, you know, like I said, Tom Petty and NRBQ and... Um, you know, uh, um, yeah, melodic. Well, I think too. One yeah. thing that Husker Du did that's that's you know, I think any great band or any band that that uh, you know we hold into high regard, they progressed, right? I mean, they got yes. better and changed, and and you know, and it like the Clash or. Um, you know, I mean, I love the Ramones, but, you know, you can listen to the last Ramones album and it's going to sound a lot like, you know, the first two. Um, you know, these guys, you know, really morphed into something by the end and it was quick and it was, you know, they, they I mean, well, I mean there's, there had to been a, an insane amount of burnout. I think there was obviously intention with this band, um, you know, by the end because these guys put out an album every year. They toured nonstop um, and, you know, played their asses off. I think that's a... That's a great, um, great opportunity. Let's take a quick break, and then we can come back. And I, I want to ask you guys about uh, favorite albums, and um, let's let's you know get our listeners set up with with the starter kit. Welcome back to Brother, Brother, Brother. Uh, today we're talking Husker Du, and, um, you know, we've talked about their place in, in punk's lineage. Uh, we've talked about the, you know, incredible songwriting duo that, that um, Bob Mould and Grant Hart represented, and sorry to leave out Mr. Norman. Um, but uh, but I wanted to ask you guys, like, what are your favorite albums? I mean, I, I just, I'll start by saying, for, for me, I think, you know, I, I do really like Metal Circus, and obviously, you know, Zenar Kid's incredible, but I probably lean toward Flip Your Wig. I think it's it's sort of the more emotional songwriting that you were just talking about a moment ago. Um, but what what is it for you and why? Well, 
uh, I mean, if you if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump in. The, the I you know I'm a Zen Arcade uh, fan. I'd say Flip Your Wig was probably is probably the album I've listened to the most. New Day Rising. Those three are of a piece to me. They kind of like I said before. They they that was like this insanely. Uh, prolific period for the band where it felt like they put out an album every couple weeks. I mean, they put out a double album and then they put out two albums um, in succession that, you know, I think, I believe the three of those albums came out in the same calendar year, not necessarily, I mean, not, sorry, not the same calendar year, but within 12 months of each other. Um, So, I mean, they were just, they were cranking out um, music, like, Nobody, you know, in the the way that, you know, people used to do in the 60s, you know, 50s and 60s, it was like, and they also, you know, and, and, you know, you can argue pro or con on this, but they also kind of recorded live to tape. I know Zen Arcade famously was recorded for 3,200 bucks over the course of 45 hours and over a weekend. Um, So, you know, they literally played that as it was basically a live album with no audience. Um, Jerry, what's your what's your favorite yeah, it's funny. So, I mean, I think like both of you guys, I think Flip Your Wig is the album that I started with and, and probably played the most. And as I've gotten kind of, you know, older and more familiar with the other albums, I think my favorite album is New Day Rising. I think it, it has a mix of the the sort of, you know, still the fast punk, but with, you know, some acoustic songs. And it has two of my favorite Grand Hart songs, you know, Terms of Psychic Warfare and, and books about UFOs, which I... I still like think are my two favorite who's crew songs um they've also a trillion about, mixes including about, our top million songs of yeah. all time um talk about songs that don't have punk rock titles or yeah. punk rock sound at all i mean those are no, they're you know, just yeah, yeah just really melodic great songs and the other thing though i will throw out there as a disclaimer for anybody who hasn't dived into who's could do any of our listeners or, or has, you know always heard about them but not taking a chance the sound quality really sucks on all of these albums <laughs> and it was uh it's one of the They're things that always kind of bum me out, you know. I mean, and Grant Hart's, I mean, first of all, he's drumming and singing, which is never an easy feat. Oh, but, is that um, what that clatter is in the background of those the, albums? Those yeah. are drums? Yeah, exactly. You can't hear them, you know, and the drums are just tinny as hell. I think the guitar never quite cuts the way it should. I mean, it says That's a lot. That's funny. Actually, actually I, like the way the, the, I like the way that the guitars are, are I just recorded. always I, thought I don't it know could if it's be, intentional, but I I've I learned to it. love it. Yeah. Cleaner. And, and I mean, I, I, I'm actually I'm going to give them credit for the fact that, like, these songs are so damn good that it, the sound quality doesn't matter. And I am not an audiophile. Like, I, you know, I just did a pod on Guided by Voices, for Christ's sakes. But, like... <laughs> like, um, you know, I just, I've always been a little bummed at like the muted sound because this band is so, for, for, you know, ferocious otherwise. And I never got to see him live, unlike when, um, wish I had, but I did see Bob Mould. I've got to say, later. just between your, like, your, the two of you and your, you know, love and adoration of Husker Du and Guided by Voices, like, and the fact that that stuff was pushed on me at such a young age, I really did think that, like, you lived in the fucking Stone Age in the 1980s and, like, that this <laughs> recording technology just didn't exist. And then I go listen to other stuff and I'm like, oh, that's the Talking Heads. Or, you know, it's like the, the, like, this sounds fucking awesome. Like, this is really well recorded. So, um, yeah, it's it's doable. Uh, it's doable, but, but it is a tribute. I think you know, echoing your point, Jerry. I think it's a tribute to the songs. Absolutely, that, that you know you can love these albums and still take a step back and be like, oh my god, the production on this is fucking atrocious. And I do. And that actually kind of was a was a stumbling point for me when I was young. You know, when I was in high school, listening to these records because the drums are so shitty and tinny, um, and uh, you know the. It's not the beats. It's it's the recording. It's it's just it's terrible. Um, and that said, um, you know these are fantastic um, records. You know a song like "Books About UFOs" really you know brings a, a fine point on it because you know the drums aren't the aren't the uh, you know you barely hear the drums in that song and the piano's so forward that you're like oh, okay well this is you know this sounds like a well produced song even though it, it it's you know, so I think for listeners, we can all agree that, uh, you know, if you're going to go to Who's Could Do for the first time, Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, Flip Your Wig is a pretty damn good. That's the starter kit. And it. you'll just have to forgive the fact that it sounds like it was um, produced by uh, 
Us. By spotted, SMT. <laughs> yeah, it was spotted. No, yeah. but by, by brother, brother, brother's uh, crack team of audio engineers who clearly uh, who clearly put this podcast Step together aside. on a weekly basis. We like a low fi sound here. But yeah, brother. we're very like Albini esque. But like I was saying, you know, and, and you know, you and I are, are uh, Jared and I have a sort of uh, you know, I, I happen to like Candy Apple Gray because it hit me at the right time. I was you know, it was at a point when technology and um, means conspired to, to make you listen to whole albums over and over again. Um, I, I love that album for a number of reasons. I think the the dynamics in the songs are so different. You know, there's two very sort of ballady acoustic songs on it. There's also, I think, the great the best vocal I think Husker Who ever did is on Eiffel Tower High when Grant Hart and Bob Mulder singing together and you know Grant Hart soaring over. Um, you know, uh, Bob Mould's kind of uh, forceful baritone with a, you know, with a sort of aching background vocal. Also, um, you know, the singles off that were both Grant Hart songs, Don't Want to Know If You Are Lonely and Sorry Somehow, and Don't Want to Know If You Are Lonely, not only one of the greatest song titles of all time, but one of the, you know, great pop punk songs of all time. And I think that you know, their influence lies, you know, uh, you could you could take that song oh, and yeah. sort of extrapolate it out as, you know, as far as their influence goes. You know, people like Nirvana. Jawbreaker, um, for sure. But even even less credibly, if you want to sort of step... I mean, okay, of course, like, uh, yeah, Jawbreaker um, and Super Green Chunk. Day. Yeah. I definitely think. And Super Chunk. But, I mean, even if you were to, to just recognize that they're also sort of at the... At the um, the dawn of, of emo and uh, and then the sort of pop punk that became soaringly popular and turned into Blink-182 20 years later. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is like that. You don't have that kind of conscious, like, melody in punk music without But uh, I think even, like, mainstream rock, like bands like the Foo Fighters owe a huge debt of gratitude to Husker Du, um, you know, because, you know, the world caught up with... Um, you know, independent music and became louder and faster. So the louder, faster mainstream stuff is is going to be it was a lot coupled with with songs that could be romantic or emotional. It's it's fast music for sad boys. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm That's the name of this I'm, pod, by the way. This is yeah. this episode. <laughs> fast music for sad boys. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, it, what it was like. What I mean, you've you've talked about the audience there, but it was. I mean, it was it was probably. Uh, I'd say overrepresented, you know, males were overrepresented well, in that audience. 9%. <laughs> Who's your do fans in 1985 were, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would, Possibly in 2017. <laughs> I would right. subtitle this podcast, Music to Not Get Laid By. <laughs> exactly. Circa 1985. Um, Even the Smiths could get that. <laughs> so, uh, with that, should we take a break and come back and do, uh, what are you listening to yeah. and wrap this up? Let's do it. Sounds good. Welcome back to Brother, Brother, Brother. We have uh, spent the day talking about Husker Du, um, and I think you know we've we've learned a lot about this band and sort of put together the starter kit, which really is 
Um, I think Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, and um, Flip Your Wig, would you say? Uh, and with that, I, I think we're uh, ready to turn on to, you know, we'll end this pod the way that we end every pod with, uh, with a segment called, what are you listening to? Um, so Wyndham, what are you, uh, what are you listening to? Well, uh, you and I are together in Brooklyn right now. We, uh, have been hanging out the last couple of days and last night we watched the, uh, first episode or the first, uh, I guess, uh, first of 10, um, episodes of, Ken Burns is Vietnam, and um, it's fucking phenomenal. Yeah, it's as good as I hoped it would be. Uh, I mean, that guy really doesn't miss too often. I mean, I think he really does spend the, the time and energy and, and you know, d- dedicate all of his um, curatorial powers uh, to, to really sort of ensuring that he gets the absolute best footage and the absolute best interviews. Um, and he's he's just so good at splicing these things to sort of weave together a, 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 a yeah comprehensive narrative that I think is you know really does tell a great story. Um, I'm super excited about it. Obviously, having spent a bunch of time um, working out there in the last uh, uh, last eight years. So well, um, Christian, being a um, a uh, former uh, political um, analyst for Southeast Asia, was able to fill in. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of blanks in a Ken Burns uh, document, but there is. Um, a sort of color commentary that went along with watching it with somebody who has such a depth of knowledge of the subject. So it was really interesting to me, but it was doubly interesting to me to watch it with Christian. So uh, a lot of, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly, but I also... Because uh, who doesn't love having TV narrated to them by the person sitting next to them on the couch? Um, <laughs> watch so, me watch this. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, Jeremy, what about you? Um so looking forward to that as well, and uh, maybe I'll call you up, Christian, for some live narration. But um, good, I was I'll have lots of practice by then. Stuck in a uh, hotel room for the last week in your old uh, college town of Baltimore, Maryland, and I um, took one night off from a, a show that I was at and and watched. Apparently, it's a five-year-old documentary that I didn't realize was five years old, but um, but loved. And it was the Upside Down documentary directed by Danny O'Connor about Alan McGee and Creation Records, um, the uh, British label. And uh, I just, you know, it was just kind of sort of a sweet spot of, of my musical uh, youth. So, you know, not only did he, you know, find Jesus and Mary Chain and, and some of the bands that, that Wynn kind of turned me on to early, it also really nailed, like, My Bloody Valentine, the shoegazer scene with Ride and Swerve Driver into, you know, Primal Scream and the, and the dance um, music scene in Manchester. And this guy just, like, literally had his finger on the pulse of everything cool that was happening in, in England and in Scotland friend at the time. Of, friend of the brother, brother, brother pod, Andy Weatherall. Yeah, uh, loaded. Um, Primal Scream's first big hit. And, um, you know, it was, you know, basically just, uh, you know, you love characters like this. The guy that, like, basically went up, went to a rave and was, like, rented an apartment the next day in Manchester so he could go out every night and do ecstasy and, <laughs> and get um, David Weatherall to, you know, remix a track. And, and, you know, not only that, then would come back and, and found, like, Teenage Fan Club or... or um, we were talking about Bob Oasis. Moore, he put out, he put out Copper Blue. Yeah, and it all ended actually with Oasis. So, you know, everything that kind of they were striving for and they had multiple hits. And, and People huge. who make decisions like that, by the way, shouldn't be rewarded like that. Uh, it's insane. <laughs> and I mean, and I think there were some hard times, too, if you haven't seen the documentary. But, but the, um, you know, the greatest was it was sort of like a great success story of a, of a guy that, you know, had his finger on the pulse. Some, a lot of those bands were very big in England, not some of them fairly large here but then you know his last band he signed was oasis after two songs but highly recommended it uh it reminded me a lot of a lot of bands that i hadn't listened to in a long time and it was it's just a fun well done doc as well so christian yeah. how about you well no i'm i'm going with vietnam i okay, think that was so the, that double. was the shared experience Sorry. this week yeah um so uh so let's turn to let's, let's add audio songs. from christian yeah exactly um <laughs> now with bonus audio um i should be on like the the pbs telethon um, but uh, so to viewers like you, exactly. Do we want to? Um, yeah, <laughs> this, this documentary is ruined thanks to viewers like you. <laughs> um, but do we want to add songs to the top ten thousand? Hell yes. Okay. Uh, all right, Wyndham, you first. Chair, you first. All right. Well, I'm gonna. Uh, I know there'll be some Husker Du put on this, so I'm gonna stick with Creation Records. And I don't think we've put on Just Like Honey yet, have we? Oh Jesus yeah. And Mary Chain. That's great. Great song. What's going on. 
All right. Um, I'll, I'll chime in next. I'm, uh, I'm veering away from, uh, from the Husker Du Pod, but I'll put on uh, Mr. Noah by Panda Bear. I nice. fucking love that song. Nice. Well, I'm actually not going to go Husker Du because I know there's Husker Du on there, but why don't we go with Loaded by Primal Scream? Perfect. Great one. Uh, thank you, Andy Weatherall. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, and um, we will be back soon. Um, and uh, uh, rest in peace, Grant Hart. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.